This is InsureTech Radio, episode number two, with me, Connor Sweetman. This week's guest is Chris Sandelands of Oxbow Partners. Chris Sandelands is a partner at Oxbow Partners. They are a boutique management consulting firm working exclusively within the insurance industry. Oxbow Partners publish an annual report called InsureTech Impact 25. This is an assessment of 25 emerging technology businesses that Oxbow Partners believe will have a major impact on insurers and brokers in the year ahead. Chris started his career as a DNO underwriter at Munich Re before moving into management consulting. Chris, welcome to InsureTech Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. Thanks for coming on. Um, can, can you give me a little bit about your uh, career journey? I know you, you started off in underwriting, went into the magical world of consultancy. How did that come about? Sure. So I, uh, I did, in fact, start off as an underwriter, as you say. I was a high-layer um, DNO fac underwriter at Munich Re out in Munich, um, straight out of university. Uh, had a great time. Munich Re has, as you would imagine, uh, a really great graduate program. Um, but ultimately, um, I got to a stage where I was keen to try some other things outside of underwriting in the insurance world. And so the natural move is into consulting, or at least it was for me. So I joined Oliver Wyman for um, about six years in the end in their insurance practice uh, and really enjoyed uh, the range of um, projects that I worked on, the, the broad range of topics. Um, and... Um, so, so that was kind of my big shift into consulting. But in my early thirties, I had a, a slight bug to do something a little bit. Uh, well, I suppose it was a uh, midlife career crisis, and so I uh, set up a startup which had nothing to do with insurance, and unfortunately didn't make me quite as rich as I was hoping. Um, but what it did get me into was agile software development, and I right. thought that. Agile software development is actually a really interesting set of principles um, which could be applied in an insurance consulting context. So my next move was then to go back into a consulting, but um, somewhat wiser uh, and slightly poorer from having done the startup. And, what was the startup? What, what um, it was actually, I was trying to build LinkedIn for PAs. So the use case was that your PA is in Dublin uh, and you're off on a business trip to, for example, Manchester, and your PA doesn't really know um, where you should stay or where you should take an important client for dinner. Um, whereas there are PAs in Manchester who uh, do know that and have the equal and opposite problem when you're, uh, when their people are off to Dublin. So I was trying to help PAs share information uh, better. Cool. And it kind of worked, sort of, in a limited way. Uh, but um, unfortunately, the revenue model just didn't really work. And I got to the stage where I um, I decided I was probably a better consultant than I was startup entrepreneur. <laughs> how many, how long did you spend doing that? Uh, I did it for about uh, two years in the end. Wow. Um, and so after um, finishing the startup, I ended up working for myself for a bit as a consultant. And then the natural next step was then to um, turn that into a business. And that was the origins of Oxbow Partners. So we're a, an insurance consulting business, um, but we try where it's possible. And it's not always possible, but sometimes it is to um, integrate the principles of agile into the consulting work that we do. And how do you do that? Well, I guess it's all about um, trying to think about as we sometimes describe, when the um, major risk of uh, doing something new shifts from not understanding the opportunity well enough to not understanding how to execute it well enough. And what I mean by that is that a lot of companies spend a lot of time thinking about what they should be doing. So how big is the market? What is the possible profit pool if we enter this market? And we spend a lot of time analysing that. But 
in doing that, they don't spend as much time thinking about what you really need to do to to get there. And actually, what sometimes or what normally I would argue um, stops strategies being implemented is the fact that you have just underestimated the complexity of the IT change that is required to get there. And so, by um, so I think what agile principles are useful for is getting into the execution phase a bit more quickly so that you start really understanding what it is that's on your critical path to getting something to happen. And I think but only by starting that execution do you really um, flush that out in um, with any certainty. Whereas if you're still in the analysis phase, it's much easier to gloss over some of that complexity. Yeah, I was just thinking I probably, I do have, experience of seeing that but i never really put it in that in those ways like setting up uh, or developing uh, just normal insurance products everyone would say oh there's x amount of uh, potential customers and you know they go down through that but they don't really think about well how are we actually going to get to those customers how are we actually going to yeah that's exactly it and so a lot of people a lot of companies spend a lot of time trying to figure out based on proxy data how many people might buy that product but really the only way of validating how many people are going to buy your product in the early stages at least is just to get it to market as quickly as possible and see if someone buys it um now clearly i'm slightly oversimplifying because you need to make sure that you know there is actually a big market and you're not just selling a few easy early policies and in the insurance world in particular you need to make sure you're not um, entering into too much reputational regulatory risk and all of those things but i think the general principle that i would argue that insurance companies can apply from agile into what they're doing is just to try and shift that point where you are thinking about what to do to actually doing it um, to be a bit sooner and how do you marry or how, what kind of conversations do you have with say underwriting managers who are very unsure about say the profit potential of a product uh, or line of business because i imagine that's quite you know for you to say to an underwriter just just do it and see what happens and then we'll fix along the way like yeah I so that's quite uncomfortable. I, I completely agree with you and that's why um the worst thing to do is to assume that agile just means just do it and see what happens. Um, because that's exactly when you do enter into those um, scenarios of having assumed regulatory reputational or in your example, financial risk from doing something. Um, and so I would say agile is often misunderstood as leaping into doing stuff without thinking about what you're doing beforehand. And that is just clearly not what agile is all about. Um, so, you know, uh, someone like Uber didn't accidentally just start a taxi company and sort of discover that that was quite successful. I'd imagine that there was an awful lot of upfront thinking about what the opportunity was before then executing the technology using agile principles. I understand. Um, and so, um, with your underwriting manager example, I think you need to do some really robust uh, analysis upfront to make sure that what you're about to do is not stupid and to make sure that you're taking the best of your available options. But there comes a point where you just cannot be more certain than um, you already are. And no matter how much more analysis you're going to do about the potential profitability of the product, you're not going to be able to prove it. And I think that's the point where you just say, look, if we're going to do this, we might as well do it now because doing more analysis isn't going to tell us anything we don't already know. Yeah, and you can never fully maximize certainty anyway. That's exactly yeah. the point. So it's it's that balance of confidence versus certainty and when you have enough confidence to do something. And so then more broadly then, what what, what kind of roles do consultants play in with insurers? So I guess... It, it, it very much depends because consulting is a broad church 
of um, industry specialists, functional specialists, generalists, and so on. Um, we very much sit in the um, industry specialist box, so we only do insurance work, um, and all of the work that we do, you would put in a box described as strategy or operations or something like that. So we generally only work with senior insurance um, leaders, helping them think about what they should be doing and and how they should be doing it, and then help them get it done. Um, as for Oxbow Partners, we work across uh, three main areas. So we help people think about strategy. And in layman's terms, what that really means is, um, what do I do next? Mm. Uh, how do I grow? Should I go into another market? Should I go into another product? Um, and, and if I do that, what might the P&L profile look like? What, might, um, what, what do I have to put in place to make it happen? The second bucket is operations. Um, and so in that case, we might help an insurance company with something like a claims transformation or an underwriting process transformation, something like that. So really sort of making the core processes of a company work um, more smoothly than they do already. And then the third bucket that we work in is digital. And uh, what we're helping companies with there is figuring out what um, what they should be doing in terms of a core um, core platform, for example. So if um, if they're writing SME products, which systems really help you um, build and digital e-trading portal, um, use third-party data sets to price um, package policies uh, and to process all of that efficiently. Yeah. Um, and I guess the reason that people bring us in is a combination of um, probably two things. One is just content. So there are some areas um, like in Shortech, where I would say that our international and broad view of the market just means that we see a lot of stuff, which any single company is unlikely to see by itself just because of the nature of what they do and what we do. Uh, and the second reason that people get us in is process. Um, because even um, if we don't know more than a client, uh, and that's often the case because clearly clients know more about their own business than we do, um, in that case, you know what we can bring is a, a process that puts structure around a, uh, a situation and then helps a management team go through that process in a structured way, um, working out what questions they need to answer in what order, um, and then helping them answer those questions probably with some content along the way. So even if we don't know the intricacies of someone's business better than they do, um, we know enough about the industry to bring challenge and alternative perspectives and things yeah. like that. And is that, so when you say questions, are they like specific questions that you would go away and think about after our initial meeting? Or do you, are there kind of typical questions that you'll ask a client? Uh it, it depends. So I guess in, I mean, we maintain relationships with many companies and um, that's the enjoyable part of the job, I suppose, because you're talking to senior leaders regularly about what they're doing and how they're thinking about it. And so um, in those situations, what we're doing is just providing some thoughts um, ad hoc in conversations um, as an advisor would. Um, if things move into being a formal engagement, then it's a combination of meetings where you're thinking on your feet, um, but also taking away problems and uh, and then spending a period of time thinking about them and coming up with the best approach uh, for them and then advising the client on what you do at that point. So it's a, a mix of um, mix of things that you have to have to do. Cool. I'm specifically thinking now along when, when you get talking about InsureTech and uh, obviously that's a term that's only really existed in the last number of years. So how was like, um, the conversation around insure tech uh, evolved over uh, over maybe the last 
five, ten years, even though that phrase didn't exist. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting time. So maybe to tackle two parts of that. So um, what is in short tech is a regular um, question. And I do think that's an interesting question because as many people have pointed out, it's not like um, insurance has only just discovered that technology exists. So um, so in some ways, in short tech, you could argue is no new phenomenon. And I think that's basically true. But what is true is that there has been this cohort of small-ish companies small but often fast-growing companies that has launched in the last let's call it four or five years um, and is trying to um, provide new solutions approaches technologies whatever you want to call it for the insurance industry and so the word insurtech i guess is used to describe that um, current cohort of companies and it's kind of interesting because sometimes you see a company that is quite established maybe you know 10 15 years old that has you know several dozen million pounds of um, revenue already um, and they are now sometimes trying to describe themselves as insurtech which is kind of true if you take the two words apart and sort of see them as insurance technology but actually most people use insurtech to describe this sort of newer cohort of um, technology companies without wanting to suggest, like I say, that they're the first insurance technology companies. Um, And so what I think we're seeing is that because there's this greater velocity of companies that are bringing technology ideas into the industry, companies have been really trying to figure out what they should do about this. And and I think we're going through a, a sort of an evolution of the process here. So in the sort of 2014, 15, 16, I would say a lot of companies had a sort of an initial response to InsurTech, which in many cases meant setting up a corporate venture fund, investing directly, um, doing partnerships with um, all sorts of companies. And I think what we have found is that some of those companies were reasonably successful, but a lot of companies have found that actually they haven't really got the payback that they were expecting from those investments. And so I think what we're now entering is this sort of second age of insurtech where um, people have got a bit frustrated. They're now taking a step back, thinking about what to do next, being a bit more structured about it um, and, and and having another go, if you like. And so I think um, what we're now seeing is um, partnerships and companies that maybe are a little bit more prosaic and not promising genuine market disruption. Um but just promising some kind of tangible PL result that um, you know isn't going to change a company's life, but uh, in aggregate with all the other initiatives that they're doing will be valuable um, to the overall result. Mm. And are there some are there companies that do this better than others? Uh, as always, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and what what would stand out to you then as the features of uh, say incumbent insurers who, who do it better, or or actually maybe a better question is what are mistakes that are typically yeah. made? Well, actually, I might I might take the first of those two things because then I'm I'm more comfortable as a consultant calling out people who are doing things well than badly. <laughs> um, so I think there's probably a couple of things that I could um, pick out for the companies that are doing well. Um, I think. First of all, it's really important not to have an objective that starts with the word insurtech. 
but to think more broadly about what you're trying to achieve as a business and then to pick out where the insurtech opportunities are. So um, at Oxbow Partners, we have always argued that insurtech isn't this new category of thing which everyone has to pile into, otherwise they're going to miss the sort of the, the, the next period of insurance. Um, what, what insurtech allows you to do is either to reach customers in a new way or through a new channel or to take out cost out of your claims operational, whatever it is. And so I think companies that are clear about that and say, right, we want to do a claims transformation. What are all the things we can do? And by the way, what, which insurtechs can we use for which purpose in this whole process um, are going about this the right way? Um, secondly, uh, I think it's also really important um, to have a long-term view on this. And what I mean by that is that um, depending on exactly what kind of insurtech you're partnering with or investing in or whatever it is, it's unlikely in insurance that things are going to happen overnight. So um, I just think that no matter how much people um, think that the industry is going to change like really fast, it might change faster than the past, but it's not going to change in the next six months. So the example I give is something like Amazon, where they can send me a, an email once a week and say, hey, don't go to the bookshop anymore, buy the book here. And after 10 weeks, I might say, okay, fine, this week, I'm not going to go to the bookshop, I'm going to try this new thing called Amazon. And then suddenly, I realize that Amazon is amazing. And I order all of my books on Amazon. But the equivalent for motor insurance is 10 years, right? Because I only buy motor insurance once every every year. And so it just takes a lot longer for things to sort of permeate um, into the everyday in insurance. Now, I'm not saying that you know, nothing's going to happen for 10 years by any means. But but it is true that things just take a bit longer. And I think as a result, management teams need to have a long-term view um, about insurtech. And that then, I guess, goes back to this question about objectives and strategy, which is that given that this isn't the sort of thing where you're going to see some sort of dramatic result in the next six months, probably, um, I think it's important that management just have a really clear view about where they think that the opportunities are, stick to those, uh, and then make some very considered bets about those opportunities um, which uh, which they they commit to. Yeah, and it's interesting because I don't think it's ever going to happen where someone says, oh, I have to renew my motor insurtech. You know, it's just going to be insurance eventually. Yeah, and I completely agree. The insurance industry talks a lot about insurtech at the moment, but uh, only last night I was out with a friend who told me how much he hated his insurance policy. Um, now, you know, um, I think people in the industry also sometimes exaggerate the extent to which people hate insurance, but um, that's a topic for another day and probably some research rather than anecdotes. But but it's true that just because there's a new sexy way of buying, um, I don't know, SME insurance via um, a third party platform that previously couldn't sell insurance doesn't mean that everyone's suddenly going to be really keen to throw um, money at a new insurance product. Um, you know, ultimately, an insurance premium is still wasted money uh, if you don't get um, if you don't get a, any money back in the claim in the eyes of most customers. Um, and clearly, if they do all get money back, then it's not a good product for insurance to be selling. So yeah. um, nothing is ever going to make insurance both exciting and um, uh, and a fun <laughs> expenditure for a customer. No, they're not adjectives I typically associate. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> 
Uh, maybe we could uh, jump over to the InsureTech Impact 25 report. Yeah. Um, so that is, by the time this podcast uh, is out, it would have been launched. So can you tell me a little bit about the report? What was the uh, the idea behind it and uh, what were some of the outcomes? Sure. So um, we, um, we're just publishing the second um, edition of the um, InsureTech Impact 25 um, and the reason we published it for the first time in 2018 was because we felt like there were an awful lot of infographics floating around the internet with 400 logos on saying, here are some amazing AI and short text. And we were thinking, this doesn't really help our clients. So our clients are all, I don't know, CEOs or CEOs or whatever of insurance companies. And they don't need to know what the 400 best AI companies are. What they need to know is who specifically is going to help them. Who, who should they call? Who, whose call should they take? And so what we thought was that it would be a much more interesting exercise to try and pick out 25 companies which were interesting and relevant to a senior um, executive in the European insurance industry. So that was the starting point. Um, we published it for the first time, like I say, last year. Um, we got 13,000 um, direct downloads from our website. Um, and we know that it was passed around companies much more um, as well. So I have no idea how many people read it. Um, Such an enormous number. Uh, yeah, we were yeah. pretty pleased with that. Um, and uh, and we know that a lot of the people, um, the companies who were featured on the um, on the report also got um, new partnerships out of it. Oh, so um, that was also really, uh, really good for us. Um, and, um, and so, so yeah, so, so we've decided to do it again because it was successful the first time. I think it's important also to mention that none of the companies pay to be part of, um, the Impact 25. Uh, and so impartiality and objectivity are just really important to us. And, um, uh, and yeah, so it, it's, it's about to go live. So what are the, uh, um, how do you, how does a company end up? What are, what are the, what's the minimum acceptance criteria, and then how do you actually assess whether or not they make an impact? Right. So it's um, it's quite a lot of work, uh, which um, which we discovered to our um, pain last year, and uh, weren't really able to minimise by much this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, our criteria basically that companies have to have at least a hundred thousand pounds of uh, revenue in the previous, or sorry, in the year before, and. Uh, not more than 10 million. And so in a nutshell, what we're really trying to find is companies which are established, but not household names. Um, we, uh, we do want to see their revenues because we think that's basically the best indicator of any kind of traction. Um, it is our general view that, um, there are lots of companies out there which can talk a good game about sort of AI data augmentation or whatever, but frankly, it's really hard to know who's um, who's the real deal. Um, now, I wouldn't want to suggest that anyone um, on our Impact 25 list is, you know, the next um, Microsoft because they're deliberately early stage companies and there's a long way to go in their own journeys. And I also would argue that um, some of the companies we haven't included are probably, um, you know, ju- well, have uh, every chance of being successful. Um but the whole point, I think, is that in this group of high-risk, high-growth, interesting early-stage companies, we just want to pick out some which um, insurance leaders should know about. And what were the differences uh, between the 2018 and 2019 cohort? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, it was actually much harder to do 2019 than it was to do 2018. 
Um, I think that's partly because in 2018, we had a few years worth of companies to, um, to include. Yeah. Um, and so we had, um, we had a bit of a broader field uh, in some ways to select from. Um, and in 2019, we made an explicit decision not to include any of the companies from 2018. So we basically had to go out and find 25 new companies. Um, and it's true, I think, that although InsureTech is growing and maturing, um, there are still not that many sort of companies that you would say are really sort of down the track of becoming sort of properly established and really getting real traction with insurance companies. So we're still... Um, the whole thing is still reasonably uh, early stage with a lot of companies still trying to get their sort of big break. Um, one of the things that was interesting, I think, was that there's more companies focusing on distribution again, um, or rather we've included more companies focused on distribution because we really liked some of the new models that we were seeing. Um, so we've actually introduced a new category this year. Um, last year, we just had um, one camp category called distribution uh, and then we had data and analytics operations and claims and this year we've included a category called distribution supports because there's a whole bunch of companies which are helping insurers sell more products but aren't actually selling those products themselves if you see what i mean yeah like kind of um, the way salesforce does for most businesses yeah exactly so um but actually with a much more um tailored insurance yeah. use case yeah. Um, and so, so it was interesting that there's more companies popping up again, I think, in that distribution space than um, possibly we imagined there would be. Yeah, because one of the things I noticed in the 2018 report, uh, well, you, uh, it's right there kind of on the, on the first page or two, is uh, you deliberately kind of shy away from those distribution companies or you make the point that a lot of companies start out as distribution companies but then realize that there's probably more opportunity. In yeah, exactly. And, and I think... Um, What's been interesting over the last year is that some companies launched as distribution in Shortex and then, as you say, became um, supplier in Shortex, which is what we call the B2B um, in Shortex. Um, but actually, for some of them, I think it just wasn't the silver bullet in the sense that even if you've got some great technology and even if you know that it's really relevant for many insurers, there's still such a long sales cycle that actually it doesn't necessarily accelerate you to, um, you know, great fortune in... When you say the long sales cycle, do you mean in selling the product to the insurer? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so the period of time between engaging with an insurance company and them yeah, deciding to integrate you into their um, technology stack or use you as a supplier or whatever it is can just be quite a long time. So so I think as an insurance entrepreneur, you always have this real dilemma about whether you just really sort of keep hammering the direct sales point with you know the high cost of customer acquisition, um, also a slow sales cycle, but for different reasons, or whether you... Um, whether you pivot and you say, right, I'm, I'm not going to be the world's leading consumer brand here because I'm going to start selling um, to insurance companies. But, but you know, like I say, it, it, that turns out to be a much longer process than I think people expected as well. In the 2018 report, you mentioned, you singled out uh, uh, Munich Re as a company who do engage very well with startups. Can you, can you give me a bit more about that? Sure. Um, so, uh, one of the reasons that we talked about it in our report last year was that we helped Munich set up digital partners. Um, so I should um, say that I'm biased. Um, but but that anecdote that I explained about the treaty coming up for renewal was basically Munich Re's problem. So um, every InsurTech 
went to Munich Re, said, hey, you guys are massive. Um, can you help us? And and then you had this problem about a lack of product or a lack of um, uh, underwriting authority to do something. And so um, Munich Re decided that if they were going to get into InsureTech, they might as well do it properly. And they um, asked us to think about what the opportunities were for um, for Munich Re in the InsureTech world, sort of blank sheet of paper stuff. Um, and we very quickly concluded that the opportunity for them was to build something which is now digital partners, um, i.e., you could call it an internal MGA, which has um, capacity, which can be deployed in um, startup um, digital distribution businesses. So, um, so that business has been live for about uh, three years now, just under three years. Um, there was recently some press um, that they've just gone over 100 million of GWP, so um, getting reasonably uh, big. Um, I mean, in Munich Re's terms, it's still pretty small, but yeah. um, but the growth I would say is um, that's, a, that's a standalone PNL. It's a standalone PNL, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's actually a division of Munich Re, um, and so yeah. So and and I think the reason that that's being successful so far is that they really nailed some of those things I said at the beginning. So I had a very clear understanding of where they were trying to go. Um, they had a very clear um, uh, sort of commitment to that business so they didn't have short-term kpis they had longer-term growth kpis um they put all the things in place which makes this a business successful long term rather than um sort of launching it and then insisting on a sort of year one underwriting profit or whatever it was um which i guess in many of these um um startup businesses is just not realistic Mm, absolutely um, so in the new report now coming out um, this week, um, what are some of the more interesting companies or what, which, which companies surprised you? Yeah, so um, I mean, I, don't, I shouldn't sort of single out any particular companies as being more interesting than others, but maybe I'll just sort of give a bit of a, a flavor for the kind of things we have. Yeah. So um, in the distribution category, um, there's a, uh, we've got seven companies in there this year. Um, and maybe, uh, well, and they cover a broad range of things. So we've got everything from cybersecurity to a continental European um, pensions provider um, to a sort of gig economy um, business and a parametric flood product. So one of our criteria for um, the the distribution in short tech category was that it had to be in some way sort of a new and different and interesting proposition. The reason for that is that there's many, many companies in this category now. They all call themselves digital brokers. And frankly, you know, any number of them could be successful. Some of them probably will be. Um, but in reality, they're just a digital broker. And it was quite hard to sort of say yes to this one, but no to that one. So so we, we deliberately pick stuff with quite um, diverse business models. Um, and so maybe just to talk about one in some level of detail was um, Lacquer, which is a um, effectively a digital mutual. So what they currently do, um, although this is kind of their test um, market, is that they uh, insure high value bikes and um, all of the insureds or all of the policyholders pay a premium that is capped at a certain number um, based on the claims in the previous month. And if the claims go above that cap, then um, it's reinsured out um, to an insurer. 
And so I kind of like that because um, there's a sort of good alignment of interests. Um, you don't need to employ a, a gang of actuaries to um, sort of figure out what your claims are going to be for the year ahead um, and then charge premiums that have um, risk margins baked into them. But you just say, right, so, you know, last year or last quarter, month or whatever it is, um, we had 10 grand worth of bikes nicked. And so this is your share of that pool. And so clearly there's a bit of credit risk, um, but actually their experience so far has been that um, no one has defaulted on the payment mm. because everyone seems to think that it's a fair model. That's fascinating. And you can see how that would be used in other kind of niche areas. That's exactly right. So I I just like the concept, not so much for bike insurance, which I think is you know a um, an irrelevance for the broader proposition, um, but you could totally imagine how a... Um, an affinity scheme, for example. So you could totally imagine why, for example, Irish schools or um, um, or builders or whatever it is um, would want to try one of these models, which um, shares risk amongst them rather than paying off a lot of profit to the insurance companies. Yeah, and I wonder then uh, how it how it's different for. Uh, casualty as opposed to property because you know property is a set value yeah that's absolutely right so i think um it, i would be surprised if this works for casualty anytime soon just because you've got the long tail yeah. um exposure which frankly you do need an actuary for yeah um but for anything but short tail property um i think this is this works cool and then sorry is it maybe- and so yeah so maybe a couple of others um so distribution support. Um, so this was, as I said before, companies which are not selling directly to customers, but are helping insurers sell um, uh, differently. Um, so to pick one at random, um, Hakodo, I think is quite interesting. Um, so Hakodo are a, um, a digital platform that uh, sells uh, niche SME products. So at the moment, they're selling invoice insurance. And the differentiator that they have is that they integrate with digital platforms to sell um, the insurance at the point of um, sale uh, on that digital platform. So if you're a SME, you might use an accounting platform and you might use that accounting platform to to send an invoice to someone. And at the moment, you just send the invoice and hope you get paid. Um, And what Hakoda allows you to do is to hit the button which says issue invoice and also insure my invoice for £4.99 or whatever it is. And um, so I think that's a really great proposition because it means that SMEs can get hold of micro products, um, which a broker just financially would not be able to afford to sell them. Um, But also they are buying the insurance at the point where they are thinking about money getting paid and, you know, the consequences potentially of not getting paid. Um, And so um, I suppose you could argue that that's um, um, an example of what people call embedded insurance where you're putting insurance into other propositions and i generally like that because it means that people don't have to think about insurance but basically get some form of guarantee and how that guarantee is offered is slightly irrelevant yeah and in that particular scenario you can i suppose from the customer's point of view they can see the value in it as well yeah exactly yeah exactly um, and so then just skipping across the other categories. So then um, we've got uh, a category on data and analytics. And um, again, this is quite diverse. We've got everything from marine telematics um, to um, the um, in-force, um, in-force management for life insurance um, to building uh, sensors. But I think um, the one of the interesting companies here is one called Pharma, which is a pharmaceutical analytics business. Um, and so this is um, a business that's based out in New York. 
And they, um, it was set up by a lady who has set up and sold a hedge fund. Um, so um, that gives you some idea of um, the caliber of the, yeah. uh, the management here. But um, what she uh, has done is she's aggregated a whole bunch of different pharmaceutical data sources, um, both for um, drugs and for uh, medical devices. And, um, and what that basically gives you is a dashboard of the exposure of any particular company or, or drug or device. And so in theory, what this allows you to do is when a large pharmaceutical account is coming up for renewal, the broker is trying to persuade you that it's risk-free or claims-free. So, you know, let's give them a 5% discount and, um, and, and so on. Um, but actually by using a data source like this, you can say, well, actually, you know what? There haven't been any claims, but if you look at the underlying um, defects or side effects or whatever it is that's being reported for this drug or device, um, you can see that the risk is really, really, really sort of increasing. And so I'm pretty confident that there's going to be a massive um, liability claim next year. Um, and so I kind of like that because it's very, very obvious how that would add a lot of value to a pharmaceutical liability underwriter. Yeah, and also... Uh because the, the, the underwriters are only probably collecting information that uh, is on a proposal form, so like turnover exactly. or claims yeah. experience, whereas this they're using other data sources. Exactly. So this, sources. as we, I think, say in the report, this allows you to get from experience into actual exposure. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, some um, some lines of business have maybe been a little bit better at doing that than others, but um, but it's true, I think, that many liability classes are really still looking in the rear view mirror and hoping that things continue um, as they have been, whereas some of these data sources really allow you to get really uh, much better insights. Yeah, and, as, and it is casualty. Usually that will suffer as a result of maybe inaccurate or relying too too much on uh, past performance being a, a guide to the future, whereas yeah. you know it can be sometimes, but it's not guaranteed. Exactly. Um, and then, so uh, penultimate category is then operations. And so um, we've got a couple of insurance platforms here, which are, um, are interesting. So one of the things that we've really seen is that there's been this massive proliferation of niche um, uh, trading platforms. Um, so that could be anything from back office policy admin through to um, a broker portal or direct um, distribution or whatever it is. Um, we actually have a database of, I think, 250 plus of these systems. And it's kind of interesting because they're all good at something a little bit different. Um, and so we just wanted to include uh, three of them in this paper just to give an idea of um, how insurers can just get much more nimble at building products quickly, getting them to market quickly. So really just sort of um, responding to those agile principles we were talking about, which um, which frankly, many insurers can't live up to just because they're working on legacy systems where it takes two, three, four, five months to build a new product. Um, whereas these platforms just allow you to do that much more uh, quickly. And then the final category is claims, um, where we've got two companies this year. So claims tech is quite a uh, an active area, but what we're sort of seeing is that it's clustering around a smallish number of startups, or some of them aren't really startups anymore. Um, and so Snapsheet is one of the two that we've got, um, US-based um, claims platform, and um, they are building an end-to-end claims platform, which just gives um, claims handlers or um, policyholders or brokers much better, um, just a much better claims experience. Cool. So, <coughs> so last year, um, the kind of the subtitle of the report was From Hype to Impact. Uh, so do you feel that we've gone from hype to impact? So... 
I'm not sure we've quite got to impact yet. Um, I definitely think we've gone from hype to, um, what do you want to call it, uh, um, cool, sober analysis um, to uh, <laughs> impact. Exactly, roll off the tongue. Exactly. <laughs> That's why uh, that is not the um, subtitle this year. Um, so, I mean, I do think it's true that, um, well, as I said at the beginning, one of the reasons we built the InsureTech Impact 25 was to try and get away from this idea that there were 400 amazing AI startups that were going to change your your life. Um, and I think we've got away from that. So I think people are much more sober, much more considered about what's happening in InsureTech. Um, but I'd, I don't think it's true yet that we can really say that there's been sort of impact in the sense that, you know, everything is changing because of it. Um, I do think there are pockets where things are happening. I think there are definitely some areas which are much more mature than others. Um, but I think we're still some way off um, sort of genuine impact um, at a scale which makes a difference to you know the the big companies in the industry and when we do uh, project forward to the future then uh, what kind of impact uh, would you expect to see yeah so it's interesting so um uh, i mean who knows is probably my honest answer but i think there's a few um there's a few things which maybe inform what could happen so um I think it's true that some of these um, distribution insurtechs will continue to grow, and I think some of them will be successful. And I don't think that should surprise everyone, anyone, because ultimately um, that's no different to what's always been the case. So in the UK, Direct Line launched it um, in, in the 80s and disintermediated the broker. And you know, there's always been this kind of disruptive um, force in insurance as people have had new ideas, aggregators being the, the next big wave of disruption in the early 2000s, of course. Um, so I do think that some people will come up with some distribution ideas. Um, and I think some of those ideas will be successful. And I think some of the industry will adapt better than others. Um, and like I say, that's, that's nothing new. Um, but I think there's a couple of things which are, um, which are, which insurance companies should be thinking about. And I'll, I'll sort of pick one or two of the slightly more um, out there, if you like, um, hypotheses, which we have offered in the report. So um, first of all, um, I think there's a question about how the balance of power might shift between US and European insurtechs uh, and what that means for European insurers. Because I think it's true to say that over the last well, four or five years, InsurTech has been at a relatively similar level of development in Europe and in, in the US. So there's been a cohort of reasonably successful InsurTechs in Europe and the same in, in the US. But um, what we're seeing, so over the last um, two years or so, um, later stage funding rounds have really accelerated. So the proportion of um, later stage rounds as a, as a share of um, the total funds raised has, has increased. And I think it's uh, universally uh, acknowledged that it's much easier to raise those big rounds in the US than it is in Europe. And so what I could imagine is that um, US insurtechs will start to accelerate um, how quickly they develop just because they're able to get their hands on these funds, build technology faster and uh, throw more money at marketing. And I think that could be quite interesting for European insurers because what will happen is that these companies will will – um, sort of hone their business model in New York, for example. They might do a few more US states. And then at some point in their sort of series D or E or whatever it is, they'll say, right, and now we're going to do Europe. And at that point, they come over to Europe, which are with a much more developed business model. 
which basically means that InsureTech stopped being a kind of um, friendly uh, partner for an insurer who where they can both do some some joint experiments. But actually, that InsureTech now kind of knows what they want. They kind of know where they can get it, and they've got an awful lot of money to make it happen. Um, and I think that could possibly become a little bit more uncomfortable for European insurers. And I think that's particularly true if you think about um, well-established digital distribution insurtechs and markets where um, insurers haven't had to innovate very much over the last 10, 20, 30 years just because there's been a comfortable monopoly. Um, and I offer two points of evidence for my hypothesis. So um, Lemonade, um, which we've managed to not talk about for most of this podcast, um, uh, announced... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Lemonade announced in November, I think it was last year, that they are um, planning to come over to Europe. And so... Um, you know, with all the caveats uh, that the lemonade business model is still early and they still need to prove that they can underwrite profitably and not just grow. Um, but, you know, lemonade will be arriving in Europe with a lot of money for marketing, uh, with a established business model, and that will be a lot less comfortable for European insurers than it was um, arguably for US insurers who could at least um, have a bit of run up. Um, so, and yeah, and so... My and my second um, uh, hypothesis um, for a challenge and um, always interested in debates on this is what um, the digital age means for in- incumbent business models. Um, and what I mean here is that at the moment, um, what we call the primary organizing factor of a insurance company is country. So if you look at any major insurance group, they are basically organized by a country and sometimes by a region. And it's not obvious to me that that is the most appropriate um, business model for the digital age. And my, um, my, my um, proxy for that is, um, or my evidence for that is again, Lemonade, um, who are very much organized by, um, well, uh, 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 by, well, where the technology is their primary asset. And so they think in terms of technology, how they build the technology, how they scale the technology, how they internationalize the technology. Um, and then they kind of put on the ground what they need to, um, in each country, region, state, whatever it is. And I think I remember, um, Dan Schreiber talking at a conference a while ago where he said that California was their second biggest market, but they had no people there. Now that might not be true anymore, but at the time, um, he said something down those lines. And so I think that would just be really unthinkable for a traditional insurance company. So I just cannot imagine a large insurance group setting up in a country, but not putting a substantial operation there or even doing it organically rather than just buying the local, um, you know, number five player just to get a license and a, and a foothold. Um, now I completely accept that there are lots of reasons why, um, you probably need to have some infrastructure in every country. So that could be, um, you know, regulatory reasons or whatever it is, but just this mentality that you start with a country entity and then build the tech, um, just feels a bit outdated. And what I think all companies should be thinking about is how they build global technology assets, which doesn't mean single assets in all countries, but at least means um, genuine global centers of excellence around technology and how they then roll that out into countries and how they think about those countries as 
the the enabler of digital propositions rather than the the foundations for businesses um, in those countries. And what would be some of the arguments against your proposition? What would an incumbent typically say to you? Well, there's there's a lot of arguments against it, to be fair. So, I mean, part of it is just the legacy, the fact that there's already stuff there and you have to use it and what are you going to do with all of those operations? Uh, and that's legitimate to a degree, um, but clearly um, that sort of argument doesn't save you um, if, if a ship's going down. Um, but I, I think there is... Um, significant uncertainty at this point to what extent technology can genuinely be internationalized. So I think people really underestimate how difficult it is to build um, global insurance systems, even European insurance systems. So many people have tried and failed um, on, say, motor, just because there are so many local complexities that actually the whole thing just becomes too complicated. So, so there are legitimate, I think, questions around how global your tech stack can genuinely be and so maybe some of this stuff depends by market uh, by product so uh, lemonade obviously are um, focused on um, homeowners renters insurance and that might be the sort of product where there's less um, you know integration with local country databases um, things like that maybe it's just possible to do it in some product lines and not others but i think um, broadly speaking um, if you're well, and the, and the second example of a, com- a company that is internationalizing out of the US is Inshore, which does um, um, driver's insurance for Uber drivers. And so, what these companies are at least proving is that for their narrow part of the value chain, or for their narrow product set, or whatever it is, there is an internationalization opportunity without having to be properly at scale in in multiple countries and so i think it's just one of those things that um is unproven but should be investigated by companies in in the next period of time yeah cool so we haven't gotten quite from hype to impact but we're on the right way yeah i think i think we're definitely on the right track just because um things are getting less frothy i'm seeing fewer press releases that start with the word blockchain um and more that are starting with the problem they're solving and so i think that's all um a helpful development great um so we didn't quite make it to the end without using the word blockchain <laughs> there we yes. go Sorry. Um, chris thanks very much for your time do you have any uh any par- parting words for the audience no i guess i well i think Generally, I would just advise anyone to um, be open to um, what's happening in InsureTech. I think anyone who dismisses it as a fad is um, missing the point. And I think anyone who thinks that it is the next big thing after sliced bread without challenge is also missing the point. So I think careful analysis of um, what's happening and how it could be relevant to anyone's company, I think, is um, is the best advice I can give. Um, I would hope that our um, Oxmo partners in Shortech Impact 25 um, goes some way to helping people get a good handle of it. Um, and so that's available for download Download on our website at oxbopartners.com. Um, and we also have a mailing list with a weekly InsureTech profile, which might be useful for some, um, some of your listeners. Um, so uh, apart from some self-promotion, I can't uh, think of anything more specific as uh, as advice for your listeners. And where can people find more? Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. My handle is ConsultiLands. Very clever. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and and my contact details are on the website and and so on. So I'm always happy to hear from anyone in Ireland, which um, is actually a, a country where we're doing increasing amounts of of work. So always happy to be here. Mm-hmm. Chris, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. Cheers.